Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Praveen Tipperneni. Praveen is the CEO of Waltham, Massachusetts-based Morphic Therapeutic. Morphic is developing oral small molecule drugs aimed at integrin targets. There's some fascinating biology and computational technology underpinning this work, which I discussed a couple of years ago on the long run with scientific founder Tim Springer. Go to TimmermanReport.com for a link to that archived episode to get more on the science. But just to quickly review the basics, Morphic knows that integrin targets morph from one conformational state to another. The challenge is how one might use that knowledge as part of a small molecule drug development strategy. Morphic has started off with a lead candidate against the alpha-4 beta-7 integrin target that is well-validated by Takeda's blockbuster antibody drug vetalizumab, marketed as Entivio for inflammatory bowel disease. Morphic showed last year that its orally available small molecule candidate could replicate the mechanism of the antibody, but in the more convenient form of an oral pill instead of an IV-infused antibody. Praveen and his team need to show that this initial program can live up to its promise in subsequent clinical trials and that it's not a one-off, that there are other small molecules with potential in its pipeline. Praveen is a fun and engaging speaker, and I think you'll enjoy hearing how his career led to this point of possibility with Morphic. Now, before we get started, do you want to raise awareness of your company with the most innovative people in biotech? Consider a sponsorship of the Long Run Podcast. These in-depth, engaging conversations attract an audience full of scientific entrepreneurs and venture capitalists on the leading edge. The audience grew by 40% last year. For more information, see my business representative, Stephanie Barnes. You can find her on the contact page on TimmermanReport.com. And do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular front points column on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit at TimmermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. Now, please join me and Praveen Tipperneni on the long run. Praveen Tipperneni, welcome to the long run. Hey, thanks, Luke. Uh, really excited to be here and appreciate uh, asking me to come on. So how are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm doing great. I am doing, uh, I'm doing great. Uh, you know, uh, happy with uh, actually both. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're referring more to uh, Morphic or just personally, but I think on, on, on both fronts, you know, uh, you know, very excited. Things are going well, feeling super fortunate um, in, you know, in this sort of turbulent time that we're in globally. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's great to see you and speak with you as, you know, I've covered your company since the beginning, I think, the Series A. And, and it's part of the pleasure of sticking around and covering biotech as long as I have is seeing companies, you know, 
grow up and go public and start delivering clinical trial data. So I'm, I'm eager to hear about that journey in a, you know, in this long run format. So can you, can you just start from the beginning, like um, about you a little bit about you personally, where'd you grow up Praveen? Sure. Happy to. So I grew up, so I was, I was born in India um, there, uh, uh, but I came to the U.S. Um, when I was very young, so you know, just a couple of years old, and so the you know, I, I essentially grew up American um, in Chicago. Uh, it was a western suburb of Chicago. And what did your parents do for a living? And what brought them to the U.S.? Yeah, my uh, my father was an emergency room physician, um, and and so that there was a, actually this. Uh, you know, this was very pre-IT, uh, you know, and, and things like that. So, you know, there was this wave in the late 60s where uh, the U.S. really needed physicians. And so this opening opened up, you know, for immigrant physicians in the late 60s. Um, it it kind of closed again about 10 years later. But in that, in that uh, wave where they opened up immigration for um, physicians outside this country, you know, my dad came here. Um, he had finished medical school and did his residency in Chicago. That's how we ended up there. You know, uh, where I grew up, small town, southwestern Wisconsin, Platteville, um, we had uh, an Indian immigrant family, uh, husband and wife, both physicians. And they were like the family physicians in town. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everybody saw them and knew them. And like one of their kids was one of my classmates. Um, so I think that probably was part of the same program that yeah i mean it wasn't quite as uh norman rockwell as that but the the you know it was an era where people called him doc right you know in the neighborhood and things like that so it was it was that kind of an era yeah yeah so um do you have siblings i do i have i have one sister and actually let me give you one other factoid about where i grew up it's the worldwide headquarters of mcdonald's right and oh. uh and so so you know the the i grew up um you know i, I like you I actually, I think you actually picked up running later, but as I grew up uh, running through, uh, you know, through, uh, actually I started in middle school, high school, college, but uh, so a lot of my formative years were running through Hamburger University, which is this very normal Rockwell-like campus, uh, you know, that, that they did close down just two years ago, they went to downtown, but for the last 50 years, um, I've been running through Hamburger University. So coming from a medical family, you learned that it was better to run through Hamburger University yeah. than to like eat the hamburgers. Yeah, and- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no super six thing for me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so what kind of student were you growing up there in uh, suburban Chicago? Yeah, I, I was I was a good student, but not a great student. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and because the the people around me, um, uh, which, you know, a lot of them were immigrant Indians, you know, where academics is highly valued, uh, there were just some extraordinarily smart people and, 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 you know, even cousins of mine and things like that. And so, so I was not in that caliber, uh, but, but I was, I was a very good student, but not a great student. So, so, you know, a, a low A type, type student, uh, I cared, but, um, but I wasn't as intellectually gifted as some of my peers. So these sort of like middle school, high school years, were you interested in science or, or other things? Yeah, you know, you know, that is the interesting thing is that even though I wasn't a, a great student until high school, uh, that for whatever reason, um, you, know, uh, it, you know, I was actually reading, I was interested in engineering and science from a very young age, right? So uh, I was reading popular science, popular mechanics, 
and I know the progression because I know the years that where I started to understand things like, uh, so, you know, a popular science, I could understand, you know, really since like second grade, I only started understanding all I tried. I never really started to understand scientific American until I was in high school. And then in college, I understood science. <laughs> so I actually do remember the demarcations of, of which journals I could understand at what stage. Huh, so your curiosity sort of began with a, a little more engineering, if I'm hearing that correctly, like how it, stuff works. Yeah, very much. I, I mean, I even to today, uh, it's something I, I, for whatever reason, I couldn't instill in my kids. But I, I'm a tinkerer. I, I, yeah, I'm a tinkerer. I tinker with things all the time, right? And uh, so even today, you know, I'm building things and tinkering with things and trying it. I mean, there's a PCR machine in my kitchen, right? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, so I'm always like, I'm just tinkering with like lots of stuff. I think that's kind of my core is that uh, just a tinkerer. So how does that curiosity, you know, eventually translate into, you know, medicine and, and you know, going, through, I guess, getting on a pre-med track and going to medical school? Yeah, yeah, no. That, uh, so what happened was that um, I, because, you know, the group of people, including my aunts, all they all that I associated with in that Chicago time period were all physicians, right? And so because they came in on that, on that wave, right? So literally, I only really grew up uh, knowing medicine. I, I actually didn't know anything else. And so I loved science and engineering. I mean, I loved science fairs. I was in every science fair. And I actually, my, one story, I actually won my sister's science fair at one point. I, I just loved, I, I loved uh, like doing science fairs. But the only thing I really knew, because that's what our family was really about, was medicine. So I went into MIT um, and uh, actually my son is, uh, going to your student question, my son is applying to schools now. And so he's hearing more and more of my background. And actually, my son just asked me over the weekend, like, Dad, with your record, how did you get into MIT? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. It was easier back then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. It was definitely easier back then. I wouldn't be able to today. But, uh, um, you know, but I, I, was, I went into MIT planning on becoming a mechanical engineer in order to pursue orthopedic surgery uh, in medicine. So that was my plan. And, uh, and, and it's really all I knew. But what, what really happened, right, and it, I think it happened both in college as well as in business school later, is this socialization process where you are talking to, you know, your just exceptional peers and friends, you know, and that changes you in the process, right? And so really, MIT changed me, right, in the sense that um, there, you know, you get exposed to so many people, so many things, so many interesting uh, things happening. I did, you know, also MIT has this Europe program, University Research Opportunities Program for undergrads. So every, you know, year, semester, I was doing research in something different. And so that, you know, I got kind of changed, you know, in that process. Um, and, and that's when I started thinking that uh, uh, maybe, you know, there is more and more things to think about than just medicine. And, um, and then, yeah, so that's, that's how that at least began. Okay. Now you, you mentioned you were in a competitive environment academically before, but you know, MIT is a different level. Very different. Um, very different. So, so you, you're, you're surrounded by all these smart people. You're, you've got this plan. Um, did you basically stay on this plan? To, like, cause you, you did go to medical school. I did go. Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. was it orthopedics? Is that what you did? You yeah, stay I was planning on coming. An orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, on that note about uh, you know the the different um, competitive environment at MIT. You know, there's a book. I don't know the name of it, but it was one that I read when I was young, and it was just, it was actually um, Swanson Genentech, right? And uh, and 
he he talks about in that book, uh, you know, the founding of Genentech. But he also talks about because he went to MIT. He also talks about what being an average student at MIT feels like. Right. And uh, and, you know, I was not an average. I was above average, but I was not, you know, and uh, uh, but. Uh, that that was a really interesting thing. Yeah. To, to, to your note is that you know the the you know the level of competition rises quickly. You get humbled very rapidly, you know, in that situation. Yeah, yeah. And Swanson, uh, you're you're, founder, you're around people that are just a few of them that are just that, off the charts brilliant. That, that yeah, yeah. No, I mean we we well, I mean two notes there. One is that Swanson, interesting. The founder of Genentech talks about uh, a very you know. Uh, extensively of what it feels like to be an average MIT student because he was an average MIT student, right? And uh, and then, you know, the other note on that is that uh, even to today, because yeah, a couple, like my uh, uh, fraternity brother, Namish Patel, he's the senior most physician at Sanofi now, and we, we were we were, uh, um, we were talking recently is that even, even after, you know, MIT med school, graduate school, I still have not met people as smart as the people that were in my fraternity at <laughs> MIT. They were just off the chart. Yeah, yeah. So um, you, you went to McGill. Um, did you did you change your specialty or your ideas of medicine during those years? Yeah. Um, so I went to McGill mainly as a function of the research I was doing at MIT, right? Uh, um, um, and uh, the the postdoc I was working for, I went to McGill to um, become a professor and I, I believe he's still there. Um, and, but what happened is, uh, uh, joining an MD PhD program, but again, kind of going back to, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly. And so I dropped the PhD, uh, and just finished the MD. And then what happened was I applied into more speaking surgery and, and got in, but what I was sort of realizing at that point too was I didn't know if I was fully committed to, you know, you want a surgeon to be really good and really focused. Right. And so I wasn't sure if I had that commitment at, at this point. And so I went the opposite direction and, and did uh, internal medicine. And uh, I thought just be broad at this point, because I wasn't sure what exactly I, I was trying to get changed to there, right. Of, of what it is I want to do long-term and so I did. I did residency, and um, and I, I I loved my residency. I thought it was the most fantastic thing. Again, you're around you know your peers that are just exceptional. We became very close, and I absolutely loved my residency. But by the end of my residency, I was looking for options because although I loved what I was doing, and you know, and, and it's also you're, you're on this great learning curve. I wasn't sure if it would sustain me for an entire career. I thought I, I thought I might get bored, uh, and and so that's when I was started to look for options while I was still single, you know, and, and had some flexibility. I knew that it would be much more difficult later. And that's when talking to my friends uh, who are at this point sort of making their way through the business schools, they thought that going to business school would just open up my horizons and understand, you know, kind of what, what, what just, you know, learn more about the world and things like that. And so that's, right at the end of residency when I applied and then, you know, I, I decided to attend Penn. Okay. So now did you get much pushback on this? Because like culturally I would think, you know, I mean, you come from a family of doctors and you train, you put all this time and effort into medical school, the faculty there are probably like, what are you doing? Like throwing away this great, this yeah. great training and, and the, the, the calling, 
of being a physician and treating patients. Uh, that's what it's about, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly what it's about. And and yes, I mean to all of all of the above in the sense that uh, you know, first of all, um, you know, every I always joke that you know every South Indian mother wants their son to be a cardiologist, <laughs> right? And so that's why I, I joke with sake at the um, at Verb, right? I was like, you are like the dream South Indian boy kid, <laughs> right? You know, and then, uh, some of us couldn't live up to that, right? And uh, and so my, you know, my parents literally did not talk to me for months when I told them that uh, you know I was moving on to not moving on, but I was going to business school, and uh, and because they wanted me to specialize and go into, I was planning on being a nephrologist, um, which was, they were fine with that. And, uh, and so it was tough. It was tough, right? Because you, you, um, you trained for this, you put all this investment and you don't know exactly what you're getting into. And even though now it's a little bit more conventional, like there's lots of MD, MBAs at this time, you know, there were very few, I mean, it was not, it was very confusing and, uh, and people were trying to get their heads around it. So, um, can we fast forward a little bit and yeah. how did this translate into you uh, getting into industry? How yeah. Yeah. And, and there, that's, that's where, you know, you, you really almost can't connect the dots forward or you really only can connect them backwards in the sense that I had no, uh, you know, I had no idea that I would be going into industry. Like I didn't really actually know what I was going into. Uh, um, in the sense that I was thinking maybe hospital management or something else as a sort of a parallel uh, to practicing medicine, you know, but I, I didn't really have a conception of what I was going to do. It was really, again, that socialization process of business school where, you know, all these peers are doing all these interesting things. And in, in this case, actually pharma was recruiting. Uh, so, so pharma, you know, they would look at the resume books and they, so I got just calls just out of the blue from pharma for summer internships and things like that. And that's what I started thinking about pharma and biotech and just, you know, what it's about and things like that. And, and that's how it all began. And how'd you get started? What did you do? So it, I think it was, it was, the start was really an internship at uh, um, DuPont Pharmaceuticals, um, you know, back then, because remember that was Penn, it was right there, you know, Wilmington. And that's what started it essentially, um, my interest in, in biotech pharma. I mean, I was also at that time thinking of, medical devices as well, because of my mechanical engineering background. And, uh, and I just related, you know, it does relate to Morphic a little bit, is that I just related better to scientists, right? In the sense that uh, I just think that they're more mature. You know, I, I am not the, uh, you know, the, from a Morphic perspective, I'm not the foosball, you know, ping pong player culture type of CEO. Like, you know, I'm, I, I look at this as like a serious endeavor, science, and it's to be taken seriously. And, uh, and, and I felt that it fit my personality and culture better, the kind of that science environment more than the medical device environment. So you're there at DuPont um, and they're thinking, okay, this guy's got an MD and an MBA. Like what, what kind of projects did you get started on? Yeah, it, there, there was a bunch of things. I mean, related to their uh, HIV franchise, um, related, I mean, it, was, it was broad in the sense that we uh, related to their strategy related to um, their supply chain issues. So it was, it was a broad set of things, you know, projects like MBA type of projects. But, you know, that's when there you start seeing other people and what they do, right? And, uh, and, and, and you know, I, I actually say, you know, because kind of going back to my background, it's not like I was completely only interested in science. You know, I was 
kind of a curious kid. I was actually interested in everything, right? And so, you know, I was reading encyclopedias. And uh, and, and so I was interested in science. I was in, in lots of different sciences. And so, well, you know, what I saw in a pharma company it, to this day, you know, what I see in a pharma company is just the sheer number of disciplines under one roof for a kid like me who's interested in so many different areas of science and, and, and engineering, it's a bit of a kid in the candy store, right? Just the peers that are around and just the sheer number of disciplines you need to develop a drug. And so that's really what fascinated me and captured me about, you know, biotech and, and pharma. Yeah, that's something you can't really get in graduate school anywhere, as far as I know. Like, how do you go from a basic scientific concept all the way to a pill in a bottle? I mean, that's yeah, what happens, no, that, that's that, what happens that, in no, pharma, right? Yeah, and it yeah, takes that whole village of disciplines. That, that's Yeah, that's I, I say that all the time. There, there's no school for drug discovery and development. Right? I mean, you learn it on the job, essentially apprenticed against all these amazing heads of, you know, different uh, disciplines. Okay, so you get a little uh, time there at Pharma. Um, how'd you end up going to Cubist? Because that was an important experience. That was, that was a really important experience, right? So uh, um, part of it just by good luck in a way, in the sense that, uh, so it, it was interesting. At that time, um, we were interested in moving to the East Coast, uh, my wife, because right? we were both from the East Coast. And she's from D.C., but uh, Boston was close enough uh, to be close to her family as well. And, and so the two offers I had at the time were um, Alexion and uh, Cubist, right? And and the interesting thing is, uh, in in retrospect, they obviously followed very different trajectories, but they actually looked not too dissimilar at that time. So this was this was two thousand one, two thousand two. And if you look, if you think about Alexion at that time, um, it was the same drug, uh, but you know PNH was not on the horizon yet. Is uh, the they had just failed that same drug in ACS? Yeah, you know, people forget that that they had a phase three failure in uh, acute coronary syndrome, right? So they were trading, you know, I, I can't remember exactly, but I believe they actually were trading under uh, at negative enterprise value at that time. And then Cubist was the same situation because Cubist had just failed a pneumonia trial, right? Which is unusual for uh, an antibiotic. And so they were also, you know, trading at negative enterprise value, right? And uh, and so people are like, well, how did you know? Because both of them, and I was like, I, I was new to the industry. I didn't know. Or like uh, the uh, partially just luck, but among both, I thought they were great opportunities, the people on, on both sides, but it was eventually essentially the people, you know, Mike Bonney, you know, uh, um, and others, Scott Rockledge and others at Cubist that, you know, I just clicked a little bit better with the, the people there. Um, but, you know, the Alexon people were great as well. So you come to um, the Boston Biotech Hub, you get to work at Cubist. This is early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, company had not yet one is FDA approval for uh, Cubison. Um, what kinds of things did you do there? What did you learn? Yeah, no, it, it was a, an amazing experience. And, and again, one of those things that really could only happen in a small company. And it's a great pen story as well. So what happened was that so I came in, a, so I was actually hired into the business development group. Um, and uh, this was by Oliver Fetzer, uh, who was at Cubist at the time. And, uh, and but what happened was, Within a week of being there, or a couple of weeks uh, of being there, I was actually put in the clinical group. And uh, and because what happened, I, I don't need to go into the, the politics part of it, but the the uh, um, essentially we were one of the flagship electronic filers at the time, right? And so we you know so it was, it was just beginning, right? And obviously 
somewhat of a disaster when the FDA says we don't understand your data. And uh, and you know the, at the time, um, nobody understood what was happening. But but what it turned out what was happening was the clinical reviewers at the time at the FDA. I think they might still be. I'm not sure, but we're using a program called Jump, which is a which is a um, which is a uh, an easier front end version of SaaS, like a like a you know like uh, yeah. Now, for those who are not familiar, like this switch to electronic filings, like before that, that was when, you know, you printed out everything on paper and you had like a semi truck haul it all down to like exactly. Bethesda. <laughs> like, like, like literally like 100,000 pages. That was exactly right. <laughs> right. So you can imagine there's a lot to review here and, yeah. you know, getting your formats right and, you know, making it readable and like. It's some, and you guys were like among the first to do. We this? were the pilot. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if we were the first, but we were like among the first. It was a pilot, and uh, and so the the and then them using a program that nobody's ever you know used before on on those data sets, right? And then, but so what happened then was I, I actually still remember this day well. Was it was in Oliver Fetzer's office, right? Oliver, you know, you know, they were like trying to figure. You know, Oliver had his you know, head in his hands there. And uh, who I reported to and said, you know, the FDA, they're using this program called Jump, right? And I was like, Jump, right? And, uh, and, and, you know, I was like, you know that program? I said, yeah, we know every 10 MBA knows that program, right? And I took a stats class, right? And, uh, and they said, clinical group has been looking for like, a jump consultant everywhere. They can't find one. <laughs> Right. I was like, yeah, I, I know it super well. Right. Okay. So you're on the, you're on the team now. <laughs> like you are in clinical from now on, right? Basically. Right? And, uh, and so I, I knew how to use it, uh, that program, you know, so one of those connections that can only happen in a small company in a way. And, uh, and, and, and so basically from then on, um, I was actually, I, you know, I actually remember it to this day even. Uh, so I was put on a flight basically to the FDA and talk about, being like white, <laughs> like you know, right? I was like terrified, uh, you know, because you know I was new to the industry, right? So I knew academic studies and things like that, but I had no clue what uh, you know, uh, you know, what industry kind of data sets look like, essentially. And here I was, within weeks, being put on a flight to the FDA to show them how to navigate our data sets in Jump. It was terrifying, and and uh, I remember as I was walking out, actually, um, I you know, Mike Bonney. And Frank Daly, who you know was the sort of the father of daptomycin, uh, just happened to be standing there. I was walking out, and they saw that I was just looked terrified, like, you know, right? And, uh, and they're like, "Don't worry, you'll be fine," right? You know. And uh, but it started this whole process. Well, so Cubist, I mean, this was uh, ultimately a pretty big success. I mean, it, it they got FDA approval ultimately for daptomycin, uh, sold a lot, uh, acquired by Merck. You were there for how many years? 13 years. Okay. So you, and you did business development. You did commercial strategy, learned the antibiotics business up and yeah, down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think, like retrospectively, what, what do you think were some of the key lessons you took from that experience? Yeah. No, well, just one thing. So I, I, I would not say um, commercial strategy. So, so I was, uh, so I wasn't, in, I wasn't in the commercial group. Um, so they, they basically, the way to think about it is kind of the first half was in clinical, second half is head of business development. So in licensing, oh, okay. um, okay. we did have corporate development, but but commercial strategy was something separate. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and no, I, I mean, I think uh, Cubist was an amazing experience. You know, it, it really changed my life. I mean, I, I went, 
I went and and I feel like I grew up in Cuba, basically, right? And uh, and and so it was a combination, which you know we all know is make your choices based on the people, because you know I I loved Cubist, I loved Cubist, I loved the people of Cubist, and and I felt that you know Cubists loved me too. They gave me a lot as well, a lot of experiences, a lot of training, a lot of um, belief in me that I could do things that I didn't know I was could do, and uh, and so you know I think the key lessons at least one of the key lessons, which I always say to everybody is, you know, focus on the people because, uh, you know, the, I don't know how much predictive value you really have in handicapping a drug. Right. But, um, you know, if you focus on being with the best people, uh, and people that, uh, that you admire, uh, then things will be okay. It may not be this one. It might be the next one or the next one after that, but you, things will be okay. So I think that's one lesson. I think, uh, there were a, there was good fortune in yeah. the um, the the group of people because I think I did one of these Cubist alumni stories a few years ago. Just seeing where they all went. I mean, you're one of the Cubist alumni that went on to become a CEO of another company, and there are quite a few others. Yes, maybe, maybe not all CEOs, but like doing doing interesting things, playing important yeah. roles at other companies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was it was definitely bittersweet because I I grew up there, and and you know, actually, in some ways, we were actually just hitting the accelerator at that point when Mark came calling. But um, but it, is, it has been amazing to see everybody go into different companies. And that's been a whole different and interesting, you know, experience uh, that uh, that's been great to watch. And uh, and then, you know, um, I stay in touch with lots of them. So were you there through the acquisition? By I was. Mark? I was. Okay. So then uh, I guess you, you what become a free agent or did you think about going to work at Merck or what were, what were your thoughts at that time? <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, I, I did briefly think about it. I was, a, I was a Merck employee for a month. Um, but uh, it, uh, yeah, and I mean, Merck is great. The company, obviously uh, it, it wasn't for me. It was, it was just too big. Um, you know, I, it, it reminded me a little, so I, Earlier in my, I was actually at Sun Microsystems uh, briefly, and uh, you know it, it wasn't quite Sun Microsystems in the sense that if you, when you were at Sun Microsystems, literally any time you have a meeting, the uh, this must have just been a tradition there. The the uh, the first thing people do in a meeting at Sun Microsystems is they go to the whiteboard, draw the org chart of where they fit, and the other side draws an org chart of where they fit. Right, like that is that is the first thing that happens at every Sun Microsystems meeting. And so Mark wasn't exactly like that, but you know it was big. It was really big, right? And uh, and you know I, I just felt culturally that just wasn't me. That's very that's not biotech like that no, situation you describe when exactly. it's like oh I I know jump. <laughs> It's like yeah, you figure it out <laughs> yeah. on the fly. <laughs> that's right, exactly. It's very, very different. And so I'd say that's the second lesson I think that uh, I learned at at Cubist was related to, you know, the advantage of a small company um, is, uh, you know, and we can get into some of the the theory part. But you know, what I would say is that pharmaceuticals coming at it from an, if you look at pharmaceuticals from an engineering perspective, you know, you look at uh, engineering as very integral technologies and very modular technologies, right? And at, when you're at the cutting edge you're more integral, but eventually becomes more modular and standardized like the computer industry, uh, most of the computer industry today. Pharmaceuticals is clearly on the integral side. So you need people working together. Like, you you know, you don't have, you can't, like, like in, in computers, it's modularized because it, lots of it are understood. So you can have a building that is the disk drive building, right? So someday, you know, 
you could, it's hard to really even imagine, but theoretically <laughs> you could have a toxicology building. <laughs> like, you know, you give the inputs, outputs, right? But we are so far away from that, right? And so it, it's a very integral technology. And I think what I learned at Cubist uh, is in an integral state of the industry, which is kind of where we're in, we probably will be in for at least 50 years, you really need to be iterative and collaborative, right? And and you need both of those. It's not just collaborative and it's not just iterative. You need both, right? And, uh, it's really, and that's what, yeah, that's a really interesting looking. juxtaposition there between the tech and the biotech industry. I hadn't really thought of it that way before. Um, but yeah, the, the iterative, collaborative, flexible and nimbleness um, required when, you know, biology throws you a curveball as it does. <laughs> um, no, that, that, you know, that's right. But, 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 uh, but it's... Yeah, but but we read, you know, the, the parts of the computer industry that that capture us typically are, you know, the building computers and stuff like that, which has been highly modularized and highly, uh, you know, standardized. But there are aspects of the computer industry that are more pharmaceutical-like. Like if you, like, you know, when we're talking about, it's a lot of it in the news these days about Taiwan, right? Um, semiconductor manufacturing, semiconductor test equipment for semiconductor manufacturing is very pharmaceutical-like because, you know, when you're on the very cutting edge of like, you know, the point microns, um, that can't be standardized, right? And uh, that's not understood. So that looks a lot more of from a working practice standpoint, like a pharmaceutical company. Do you want to raise awareness of your company with the most innovative people in biotech? Consider a sponsorship of the Long Run Podcast. These in-depth, engaging conversations attract an audience full of scientific entrepreneurs and venture capitalists on the leading edge. The audience grew by 40% last year. For more information, see my business representative, Stephanie Barnes. You can find her on the contact page at TimmermanReport.com. And do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular front points column on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit at TimmermanReport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. Now let's come back to this point, this decision point. Um, yep. You uh, Mer Merck acquires Cubist. You decide this is not for you. Uh, what's going to be your next move? Yeah, yeah. So um, the people, uh, yeah. So I was trying to decide what to do, right? And uh, and I was all over the place, like you know everything from idea stage to uh, much bigger. Not it wasn't as big as. Merck, but you know the vertex size companies, right? And uh, and uh, and you know because it was interesting because at that time I had just turned forty five, right? I had just turned forty five, and so actually for the first time I was feeling a bit of my mortality at that point, right? Of uh, you know that oh my god, you know this, you know you're not going to live forever, right? And uh, and fifty is right around the corner. What is it you really want to do at this point? And so you know I was taking it very seriously in the sense that given the time scale uh, that who knows, you know, for all I knew, this could be the last job for all I know. Right. And so um, I was taking it uh, seriously and, and, and feeling, I was feeling like mortal, you know, at that point. And, uh, and, and so uh, I was exploring kind of wide range trying to think of, okay, what 
kind of legacy do I want to leave? What do I want to really do here? Right. And, uh, and, and what happened was um, that uh, so I, you know, I had a bunch of offers and, and that was helping to direct things. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, the, the other thing was, you know, the people, you know, who are obviously, you know, well, as well is um, the people I knew well were, you know, a bunch of the Atlas folks. Right. And, uh, and so those were, you know, longtime friends and actually Kevin wasn't there. So I didn't know Kevin actually. Kevin, who, so, who so like, but be, having been a senior vice president, uh, business development, you know, a lot of experience, a lot of contacts in the Boston area, part of a successful company, 45 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you look like a pretty good candidate for a CEO. Is that what you were thinking? Uh, no, actually, uh, so I was, um, I was actually trying to, uh, avoid a CEO to tell you the truth. Uh, because, you know, that, that's where people were sort of pushing me, but, uh, I was actually not that I wasn't interested in it, but I thought, you know, maybe that was like 10 years down the road, mainly because I had small kids. Right. And then, so, you know, Cubis was good for me financially and I didn't, I just wasn't feeling like an ego need at all. And so I was thinking, you know, sometime in the future, um, but I was actually trying to avoid it. What what happened there? It's uh, and I'll, I I'll, you know just for because I, I haven't asked permission, so I won't state the names. But you know the the person who actually changed my trajectory was uh, Gustav Gustav Christensen, right? Uh, you know who uh, I wouldn't say he was a mentor, but you know we we Cubist did that that um, uh, Cubist did that deal with Diax, so I got to know him a little bit, and uh, and. So um, I didn't know, I wouldn't say I knew him well at that time, but you know, we would have dinner once a year, right? And so he was a bit of a, a mentor and, uh, and, and I, I certainly admired him, right? And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, he's actually the one who changed my trajectory here because he, uh, I, I had dinner with him and the, again, I won't say the names here, but the, you know, he was telling me of a meeting right before mine, like literally, you know, it was a meeting right before mine where, this person um, was having a little bit of a difficulty getting a CEO job, and he was a bit on a little bit on the older side, right? And uh, and and so you know the what Gustav was saying is that you know obviously do what you want to do, right? But you know this might be the right time for you for a CEO, right? You did you know these opportunities you that might not be the right time for you ten years from now. People, uh, you know, obviously if it's good times, people will take risks on first time CEOs, but the downturn. Maybe not, right? And uh, and he said that, you know, the venture capitalists are kind of your age at this point; they're your peers and things like that. And so he said that, you know, you should think seriously about it. That maybe this really is your time, right? And so that actually is what changed my trajectory. Like that actually, I was like, oh, maybe, 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 maybe that opportunity won't be available for me ten years from now. And so uh, that's when I started seriously thinking about it and started changing my sort of job search in that direction. So how did you first get acquainted with uh, Tim Springer and what Morphic uh, became? Yeah, I, I didn't know Tim. I did not know Kevin. Uh, I knew all players, but I didn't really know any of them. So it was different than Atlas where, you know, we were somewhat friends-ish. Uh, uh, here, I didn't know any of them. So what, what happened there was, uh, so Chip Clark, the Chip Clark and I were friends. Uh, we were Penn classmates. And, uh, and so I believe Kevin started Genosha or he was certainly on the board, but I think he might've been founded it too. I'm not sure. Uh, Kevin Bitterman. And, uh, and so uh, Chip introduced me to Kevin uh, uh, Bitterman at, who was at Polaris at the time. And so uh, Kevin and I hit it off, right. Um, you know, we got along well. And, and so that's when I started thinking about Morphic, right. And the, 
the technology actually captured me from the get-go, but it was it was literally uh, the first company that I had looked at. And so I told Kevin, like, you know, the first, literally the, <laughs> the first company, you know, uh, um, post uh, Cubis that I'm looking at. And so uh, I said, you know, I need to look up, look around a little bit. And, uh, and, but afterwards, you know, when I kind of came back and said, Hey, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring. That's when he introduced me to Tim and, uh, and, you know, it, actually Tim, at that time, uh, he he slotted me in for 15 minutes. <laughs> so it's like, he's like, you know, kind of like, yeah, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of almost doing it as like, uh, you know, I think he didn't expect to like me, I think, right? Because he literally had me down for 15 minutes in his calendar, right? Uh, so I went over to see Tim and uh, Albert, who was the person who did a lot of the work that uh, uh, that led to Morphic in Tim's lab. He was a postdoc. But we ended up um, talking for about an hour and a half, to, you know, myself, Tim, and Albert, and, uh, and so obviously that went well, and uh, and I liked Tim, I liked Albert, um, but uh, uh, so that that's kind of how you know one thing led to the next, and you know we now uh, Tim, Tim Springer is a former guest on the Long Run podcast. Yeah. I'll have to put a link in the yeah. show notes so that people can go back and listen to that um, conversation. But you said the ca- the technology captivated you right away. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like what, what was he, what was he presenting to you in terms of, yeah. cause there's, there's a couple pieces here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So when I say, because, because remember, I'm not a discovery scientist and, uh, and I don't pretend to be right. And especially when you're talking at this stage, this early stage um, where you're really talking about atoms right, moving around, you know, that's not my expertise. And, and, and really the the founding basis for the company was around very specific you know uh, molecular structures and chemotypes and you know waters and molecules and and so you know there's a key paper which we refer to all the time about the various conformations of the integrin receptor which you know today I understood but I literally asked them and, and you know there wasn't so much Tim but it was more Albert and Kevin I asked them to explain this paper to me probably like a dozen times, you know, by the end, I was like, okay, there's like zero chance they want me as CEO at this point. <laughs> you know, I've, I've asked them to explain this paper to me so many times at this point. Right. And, uh, and I finally got it, but, but that wasn't what captured me. Like the, uh, the, what captured me was the big picture thesis, right. Is that, you know, what, because again, I, you know, I can't understand it like an Albert or a Tim and, uh, and what captured me was I saw the same exact evolution happening here in the integrins that we've seen many, many times before. So, you know, uh, cause really it was a big picture a version of it. And we can go into the detail if you'd like. The big picture version of it is Tim discovers the integrin receptors. You get a couple of low hanging fruit, big drugs come out. Turns out to be harder than we thought. Uh, took another, you know, Tim goes back in the lab for another decade to figure out what happened. Cracks it and says, hey, we have another company here. Uh, that's a story from a target class that we've seen again and again and again in the industry, you know, GPCRs, kinases, and uh, and um, and that's what I saw that that story, um, which is a pretty general theme in our industry. Well, let me back up just a bit, yeah, Trent, yeah. because um, Tim, you know, best known for the founding of Leukocyte, which was eventually yeah. acquired by Millennium. Millennium made, um, you know, a fortune with most famously Velcade, but then, you know, later on came the integrin inhibitor known as Intivio on the market. Vetalizumab is the monoclonal antibody. So an antibody against ulcerative colitis, big, big selling drug directed against 
alpha four, beta seven, integrin. Um, and so there was some understanding of the integrin target class that that paved the way for that. But you know, years went by, and Tim and his team figured out a better way to approach this target class. What That's was right. that? And so what's important to understand about Morphic is that it was really built to solve one problem. It was funded to solve one problem, which is oral integrin drugs, right? The, the integrin class was very productive um, in terms of producing drugs, blockbusters in the biologics, but it confounded people when they tried to create an oral integrin antagonist and many, many, many failures. So it was really built around the insights of Tim of what happened in those failures and how we can address them and create another generation of integrin drugs. And then, you know, for integrins, a lot of the diseases that you would target are chronic diseases where an oral would really have a benefit. And so that's really what the basis of Morphic was about. And the problem, as I recall, and this is some of the first conversations I had with you when Morphic was getting started was that there was something going on with the conformational state of the integrant. Like it was, it was changing shape. So yeah. it was kind of like a, a moving target that, that we weren't hitting it right with, with the, the interventions of the time. And, and partly that was due to taking just like you know, limited imaging. So like snapshot images of a protein in one state that was not necessarily representative of the way it is in the dynamic, you know, living environment. That, that it's in. That, 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 that's right. I mean, I think the, that first generation of oral integrants, they essentially came at it from a medicinal chemistry perspective, potency, right? But they didn't under, really understand what they were targeting, right? And it's only after the failures where Tim, and, and the, I mean, you've already had him on the podcast, but, you know, obviously an incredibly fascinating guy who sort of reinvented himself as, a, you know, the structural biologist and, uh, and figured out through very elegant crystal structures that there were a number of different confirmations and that all of the orals that were in clinical trials were all inducing this particular integrin confirmation, which is the extended state, which turns out to be a high signaling state, right? And so it, it really, people thought that they were creating antagonists, but essentially they were creating you know, not exactly agonist, but it was acting in an agonist way, a high signaling state, a high affinity state, and thus explaining, you know, why in those failures, you were seeing examples where the disease was actually being revved up rather than being blocked, right? Uh, you saw with the uh, activated platelets in acute coronary syndrome, you saw it in MS where lesions were being actually increased rather <laughs> than decreased, right? And that's what he figured out. And, and that part of it, is interesting, and that part of it is published and publish it. But where it becomes a company, where it becomes something that you know could be drugged someday, is when Tim figured out some of the chemotypes that can stabilize the various you know, stabilize the integrins in various conformations, and that enabled us to create kind of true antagonists, non-signaling states, and that's really what the morphic is about. So there's a new point at which to intervene based on this more comprehensive set of images 
give you a better understanding of the structure that you're up against. And it just so happens that, you know, you can actually approach these targets with oral small molecules, with all the advantages of oral small molecules, cheap and easy to manufacture, easy to take for the patient, you know, for, and if you're looking at chronically administered diseases, I mean, this is, this is what you want. So yeah, now like you, you can begin to see like the, the potential for a company. Exactly. And, 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 you know, and then the, the other, I think the other part, going back to what I was looking for, right, is that because, you know, I was, when I was sort of, you know, um, looking at 2015, uh, a lot of these, you know, CRISPRs and gene therapies and things were going by as well, right? And, uh, and I, you know, I just felt that, um, first of all, I knew, you know, uh, I, I didn't know them well, but, uh, but you know, I had met, uh, I know Katrine much better now, but I'd met Katrine, uh, Roger Novak, um, who was at the time the uh, CEO of uh, CRISPR, uh, uh, you Katrine know, Bosley was at yeah. Editas at the Editas, time. Chris, CRISPR engine. As then was in Adelia, right? And so, so again, I didn't know these people well, but I knew them, right? And uh, um, I just thought they were a lot better than me, right? And so I did. I, I just thought that they would have all would, uh, you know, I thought that would overwhelm me. Those those the situations that they were in, and so, uh, but I felt at Morphic, I, I could actually um, spend the time. To build a culture, because it was this was something I understood. Being an being a internist as well, right? I could, see, which you know, by nature of an internist, we are tend to be a little bit conservative as well. I could see the trajectory here, right? Uh, you know, to the end, right? In a way that I couldn't see it in in, in some of these other modalities uh, at, at least at that time. And uh, and so that's you know that combination of you know I saw a place that I I thought I could really build a cool scientific culture as well as just, you know, amazing people and, and great science. Now, there's another piece here, too. We talked about the images, the structural biology, yeah. and that's really crucial to the founding. But there's also this computational medicinal mm -hmm. chemistry, right? Like, Because, yeah. you know, you've got the target, but now you have to have, like, the optimal uh, agent that binds yeah. with the right characteristics and all, all the right. drug-like pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. Um, and this was a technology that was maturing in parallel as well. How did you yeah. think about that? Yeah, no, so I think uh, I, I can't take all the, all the credit for it, but, uh, or maybe, maybe none of the credit for it, but, uh, but uh, there was a partnership that was building with Schrodinger um, at, the, at, the, at the very, very get-go. So, I mean, Schrodinger uh, was essentially founder-ish of, of Morgan, and we, you know, we call them founders, uh, that, you know, and, and um, I, uh, Kevin had, negotiated most of the agreements, so probably just the last third is where I came in. Um, but uh, that's a really important part of Morphic's success as well, in the sense that, you know, the interesting thing about the integrins is that, you know, at some level, crystal structures are somewhat commoditized at this point, uh, you know, moving on to, uh, you know, other uh, technologies uh, when you're look, thinking about structures, except not with the integrins. You know, Tim's uh, Tim's technology, which is a, a stabilizing technology, his, this is um, uh, because of the heterodimer nature of the integrins, uh, he has been able to get the crystal structures across the class in a way that nobody else has. There have been people that have gotten individual crystal structures, but not across the class. And we brought that in-house to Morphic and, and massively expanded it, right? You know, so that we have like hundreds of crystal structures, even crystal structures that, you know, uh, Tim's lab, as good as they are, haven't been able to get. But what that enabled us to do with Schrodinger, right, is that they hadn't been in a situation where they have 
this sequential proprietary crystal structure generation, you know, just massive amounts of data that they can apply to their algorithms. So it was a really nice partnership um, between Morphic and, and Schrodinger Corporation um, that both working hand in hand is what really, you know, enabled, you know, uh, these drugs. I mean, one quote that I would say from Bruce Rogers, our, our chief scientific officer who was at Pfizer at the time, and they had access to these Schrodinger workstations. Uh, one of the things that really compelled him about Morphic was that Schrodinger and Morphic were really working hand in hand as partners. Um, and so in, the, in that manner, uh, Schrodinger could do what they are best at, which is modifying their software and things like that. And Morphic could do what they're really good at, which is you know, the biology and the chemistry. Um, it, it's it's not like Pfizer where they had access to workstations, but it wasn't that tight a partnership where you know Schrodinger would be you know kind of improving on their own technologies in sync with it. And did you see this as a way to improve the probability of success? I mean, because you weren't just uh, you know uh, taking a billion compounds off the library and screening them all against these targets. It's uh, it's it's the approach is is a little different as I understand it, right? Where, you know, they're looking for, okay, we need a molecule with this kind of structure to, to, with, with these kind of properties. That's right. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's an important collaboration because, and it actually goes back to the, the integral versus modular, you know, technologies uh, uh, lens that you could look at technology in. So Schrodinger, who, uh, you know, we love Schrodinger, you know, Rami and I, the CEO, are, are good friends. We didn't know each other, you know, at the time. Um, but you're not in, at least we believe, right? Uh, and, and certainly uh, Bruce, uh, that goes back to Bruce's quote, is that we, um, uh, we, that it's still integral in the sense that, you know, their technology had never been applied exactly to this type of problem where there was a metal in the active site and things like that. And so it, it wasn't like you could just license a workstation and we'd be as good using it as Schrodinger. It, it really is that integral nature of the both sides working together in collaboration and advancing both the technology on the computational side, as well as, you know, the, uh, on, on the drug discovery side. And so, you know, at this point, I think it's just both sides it's almost integral in that you don't know which. But, but did your point. did your medchem like synthesize compounds that that you know had a higher chance of of having the right characteristics based um, on this under this knowledge? Yeah, I mean it, it's certainly uh, evolving in its in its product product, but but what's universal is that it tells you what not to do, right? So it uh, so it, it from that perspective, it takes away huge amounts of things that you don't have to synthesize, right? What won't work, right? And then yeah. you're you're just that will work, right? And so in, in, in different places, depending on things, uh, uh, you know, it, it's very predictive. Um, and, and, and so it, it, on how predictive it is depends on the program, um, but it universally is great in that it tells you what not to do. It whittles down that list of candidates. Yeah, exactly. Got it. So, so you, um, you, you really are able to hit the ground running pretty quickly. I mean, I, we can fast forward. You, you did a couple of partnerships. You got, you know, a couple of rounds of venture capital. Uh, there's, there's some buzz, some excitement. Um, how did you decide on prioritizing your, your first candidate for the clinic and, and, uh, and indications? Yeah. I mean, so that first month that I was here, it was really, um, it was really 
looking through the targets, right? Looking through the targets very carefully. Um, I, although, um, uh, you know, I, I can't understand the crystal structures in a way that Tim, Albert, Bruce can, um, but yeah, I'm pretty experienced on, you know, uh, on from the perspective of, uh, you know, being a physician, being in corporate development for so long, being in BD for so long. Um, from that perspective and that lens, uh, I can look at targets in a, in a, in a very rigorous manner and, and look at kind of what that clinical path looks like, you know, what are the risk profiles, even, you know, even from a competitive standpoint, right? And then, you know, the fascinating thing I saw here, which I didn't understand at the time is like, wait a sec, you have this target that's just sitting here. I'd never heard of it before, but there's out for beta seven target. You have it just sitting there and there's no competition. I was like, what is going on? Because uh, from the perspective of our industry, we know like, you know, once there's a validated target, that gun goes off. There's like 10 programs. Like, and I was like, wait, what is going on here? Why? Well, this have- was the target validated by Vetalizumab. This um, is the target. And, and Tivio blockbuster drug marketed by Takeda, but it's an antibody. So you're exactly. talking about a small molecule to approach a validated target, but there are no other small molecules competing okay. against you as far as you could tell. That's what I, they, they, exactly. That, that, that was what I was just kind of dumbfounded by is that, wait a second, you have this massive multi-billion dollar, you know, inf- not even IV infusion, you know, for patients that are not dying, uh, young people, right? And, um, and there's no other competition, right? And, uh, and at the time, I did not understand that, like, what, what is going on here, right? And, uh, and I even remember that board meeting where, look, it's just a matter of time, <laughs> you know, right? You know, this is just a matter of time, right? I, don't, I, don't, I can't say I understand why that is right now, but it won't last, right? And so I, at the time I said that, look, if we can get in front of that wave, we've got something, or if we can't, we're gonna get subsumed by the competition. An oral small molecule for inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, um, that would be a pretty big deal if you could do it. <laughs> so, and, so and, uh, therefore, yeah, yeah. Let, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, and with the efficacy and safety profile of betalizumab, right? I mean, because it just turned out to be remarkably safe. And uh, and so, but, but, but that's why, I mean, I think what's really important to understand is that now, today, I understand why there was no competition, right? Because it's an extraordinarily hard problem. You know, the at some level, the at some level, the clinical path is, you know, somewhat well-trotted, uh, but getting that molecule, right. You know, getting the, uh, because again, it's a heterodimer, right. And so you need to get alpha four beta seven, right. So that's the betaluzumab target, but you can't hit alpha four beta one, right. That's a Tysabri target. And they share that alpha subunit, right. Because in this indication, uh, PML is not, uh, I mean, you can't, it's not commercially acceptable or viable in, in this risk right. population, right? And so you need to be able to hit alpha 4 beta 7 without alpha 4 beta 1 and then have oral bioavailability, then have all the PK that you need. And so that's been the impossible problem, right? And, and PML. It, it was, I haven't heard of that in a long time. Progressive multifocal something. Leukoencephalopathy. Leukoencephalopathy. It's this brain infection that Tysabri patients got May, they were right. vulnerable to, they pulled Tysabri off the market for a little while for MS until they figured it out and they brought it back. It was a big, scary um, yes. adver- adverse event for the whole industry, really. So yes. like, <laughs> okay, yeah, you, no, you clearly- you're, you're blocking a CNS trafficking of leukocytes, right? So you can have reactivation of a JC virus, right? Very rare, right? But in the MS population, as we know, 
because Tysabri is still a big drug. Um, it is, it's not, it's, uh, you know, we're not excited about it, but it's, it's viable, right? In this population, it's not viable, right? In the right, young right, population right. that's healthy, it's not viable. So your team needs to uh, find a way not to inhibit um, beta one. That's right. That's right. And so it's really that crystal structure uh, and coming at it from a what I would say is that look if 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 you want to come at the immigrant class in a structure based drug discovery manner, we're the only game in town uh, because of that crystal structure nature of it, and that's really what enabled us to get that very specific inhibitor that's orally bioavailable with all the right PK characteristics um, was uh, that crystal structure, Schrodinger, very smart people together, you know, and, and uh, deliver. So because, um, you know, you, you had a, you know, a very clear idea, I think you explained this pretty well, of the target that you're up against, you nominate a candidate, you move quickly. I mean, you got from company founding to the clinic in how, how long did that take? About four years. Yeah. So I mean, and this was like scratch, scratch, like nothing. Yeah. yeah. Right. So clean sheet of paper, you're in the clinic in four years. And now here, uh, fast forward a bit, you're, um, you, you've run some clinical trials. Can you say a little bit about how those trials were designed? Because I think this is interesting. The, mm -hmm. the, the endpoints that you were looking at, um, the, the biomarkers that you're right, looking right. at yeah, I mean, uh, to validate that you're actually doing what you say you're intending to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about this program uh, is that you have very well validated biology, right? So you knew, you know what you need to do. It's hard to do that, but you know what you need to do and what the bar is, right? And so the, the uh, you know, when people have asked me over the years, the investors ask this question routinely. It's, it's, it's a typical last question that investors ask is what is keeping you up at night, you know, for most of those, I think for the, you know, until I got in the clinic for most of those years, until this year, right? I had the same exact answer. I said, what keeps me up at night uh, is the PK, right? Because, you know, we can, actually in our first earning call, I even tell the story that, that uh, I said, you know, you, we can land a person on the moon, but we can't predict the human PK. <laughs> it's still, you know, going back to integral versus modular, right? Uh, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of basic things, things we still can't predict. You're going to be surprised one way or the other. You're hopefully you're surprised positive. Right. And uh, and but because of the nature of the validated biology, you, you knew what receptor occupancy that you need. You need to block, you know, uh, basically the alpha beta seven receptor on the leukocytes. And that prevents it from going into the sub endothelial space. Right. And uh, and so you knew you needed very, very high receptor occupancy. And then and then there also are, you know, these uh, PD T leukocyte subsets of various ones that you know you want certain ones moving and not others, and so there's a lot of things you can look at to see what's happening even in phase one because of that validated biology associated with it. And you know what we were fortunate because, like I said earlier, you're going to be surprised. Either you're going to be positively surprised or negatively surprised. And luckily, we were positively surprised that the the PK in humans, which historically integrin class has had, but you don't know for sure until you, you know, you run the experiment, uh, has had better PK in humans than we saw in the, uh, in, in the preclinical. And so we were very positively surprised and at much lower doses, you know, than we expected, you know, we were able to saturate that receptor, you know, which bodes very well and is very predictive. Now, when you say better PK in humans than in animals, can you explain that a little bit? 
Yeah, that that you know what when when people say that, uh, do you think you know you'll hit your target? I always said yes. I think we'll hit our target. And but the reason I said that I think we'll hit the the our target is is, is I would always say is that Bruce Rogers, our CSO, who's brilliant and 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 a phenomenal guy, is uh, is very conservative. He's very conservative, and I joke that. Bruce won't call something a development. It will be on the market before Bruce calls it a development campaign <laughs> because he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's so conservative because he's very careful, right? And so, you know, because of that conservative nature, because we tested many species beyond what we needed to, we were pretty sure, uh, you know, we had a good case to make. A, we would hit the, uh, you know, we would hit the receptor occupancy levels that we wanted to. But what ended up happening is that, uh, we, we thought it'd be at a reasonably high dose, right? Um, that most likely, uh, and then we were being conservative about it, but it ended up even at the lowest doses, right? That we were testing, we were, you know, almost saturating the receptor and at very low doses, fully saturating the receptor. And so that just enabled this huge set of opportunities for us because, you know, now, you know, we're getting much better PK at much lower doses. Remember talking about safety and things like that. This is a population you need it to be safe, right? And so it's, it's, it's at very low doses. But you didn't, this is a small phase one trial, as you mentioned, not that many people, um, and it doesn't have the hard clinical endpoints that, you know, the FDA or others in medical community are going to want to see for inflammatory bowel disease. That'll come later. Yes. Uh, but yet your stock market, your stock, you know, booms on this. Um, <laughs> why do you think that, because uh, traditionally in biotech, that wouldn't really have happened. Market might have shrugged a little bit about some PKPD data from phase one. Like show me the, you know, the hard clinical endpoint, but that didn't happen here. Why do you think that is? I think I think again we kind of go back to uh, so so, um, and I'm not saying that the market exactly thinks this way, but but here let me give me, let me give you a thought exercise, Luke. Uh, so let's just say that um, let's just say that the the um, what's the best way to put this. Actually, just for time's sake, I won't actually go through the whole thing. But but you, if you look at it from Bayesian perspective, right? You look at the that uh, you know um, basically one hundred percent. There's like literally one hundred percent of drugs that went into the clinic that blocked alpha four beta seven have had good clinical response. There has not been uh, you know uh, a drug uh, that blocked alpha four beta seven that has not had good clinical response. And these are biologics, right? Uh, typically. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, there's no competitive advantage and, you know, things were dropped, but it wasn't because of their phase two results. And so you knew exactly what you needed to do, right? Um, you know, and alpha beta seven is expressed in both humans and in patients, right? And so people, uh, again, I don't know if the market exactly thinks that way, but if you, but if you think in a Bayesian way, right, you're talking about very high probabilities, um, you know, because you are, uh, changing your baseline if, if, from a Bayesian perspective from a hundred percent, you know, and so it's very predictive. Okay. So, you know, you still have to run the, the yeah. later stage clinical trials to, you know, turn this into a drug and fulfill that ultimate vision. That is part of what captivated you in the first place. Um, but is this a repeatable um, kind of platform here? Uh, you, you know, you do have other programs uh, or, or is the situation you, you paint here, kind of partly dependent on alpha four beta seven, just the, the nature of that. Yeah. I mean, going, going back to the reasons for coming to Morphic um, is that there was this combination of validated targets as well as novel targets. Um, and so 
you had the beginnings of a sustainable drug engine, uh, you know, of sorts, right? And then, and because the, the, uh, so, so there isn't exactly another alpha or beta seven, like, you know, where, you know, that big a drug, that obvious an opportunity, um, um, uh, and that well-validated biology. So there's not exactly that situation, but you have a different situation, um, which for certain types of folks is actually even a better situation uh, in that uh, because of the structural nature of our platform, we are able to create specific inhibitors in a way that nobody's ever done it before. And we've now, that's repeatable. We've done it many, many times. The, to the point where we don't say this lightly, but we do believe at this point that we can create a specific integrant inhibitor for any of the integrants. We haven't done it for all of them, right? But I'm saying anyone we've wanted to, we've been able to. And so what that allows us to do is take this very fundamental biology that you know Tim discovered in, in the 80s um, and interrogate it very specifically in a way that nobody's done before. So, so you know, taking an alpha beta one and taking a very specific inhibitor and seeing what happens, right? So that is allowing us to understand what is the full potential of targeting these integrins. And so, so it's a, these aren't validated, some are semi-validated, but you know, we're able to interrogate very important biology. The starting point is that deeper understanding of the of the target itself, the structural That's biology, right. and, and the fact that I mean, coming to the company yeah. name, I mean, targets morph, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, right. and and once you like really fully embrace that, uh, you can dig in and look at that and uh, use that as the basis for small molecule drug discovery. Yeah, that, this whole exactly class right. of integrant targets. That's exactly right. So, so I, I think you know some of our pipeline products. Um, you know, could be bigger, right? Um, but but they're not as validated targets as you know. They're they're very uh, some of them we haven't published because you know some of these findings are novel to us at this point. We're the only ones who know at this point. You uh, you still drawing, doing your cartoons? <laughs> not not as much. You know, it's funny because I saw an investor at a conference recently, and the, and uh, he told me like, we know you're busy because we haven't seen many cartoons lately, right? And I was like, that's true. It's been a while, right? Uh, yeah, so so no, I it's a. Uh, for the for the morphic folks for the Christmas um, uh, calendar, people asked me if I could draw um, the employees, and I, I said, "Look, I don't have time to draw all the employees, but if you pick ten of them, right, uh, I will do that." So, so in the next month, I will uh, uh, for the morphic calendar. But no, I've not done cartoons just for time's sake. Well, it is one way in which uh, you distinguish yourself. You show your personality, a little bit of. Uh fun and and yeah. mixture of your art and science and people and uh i i appreciate it you're, you're sort of like the unofficial illustrator at timmerman report having done a couple of these <laughs> for like, oh, otello otello stampaccia likes your uh <laughs> your drawing yeah, of yeah, them, yeah no. so. I, 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 was, I was i was reading that latest article i was like oh they're still using the otello uh sketch i appreciate that actually that, that that's yeah you know, I, I appreciate otello for that and you for that because uh you know that was exciting to see that in that last article that hey they're still using my sketch yeah, yeah. Until he tells me he doesn't like it, he can stay. Praveen Tiffernetti, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Hey, th thanks so much, Luke. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>